Good morning, everybody. Whether you're here today um, in person, wonderful to see you all, or whether you're seeing me and I'm sort of pretending to see you or imagining you anyway through the camera. Um, Welcome. We're going to pray and we're going to ask that God would help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we have gathered together this morning. We are watching this morning um, because we are meeting around your word and we would hear you speak to us. Uh, We would delight in sitting under your rule. And so, Father, please teach us more about worship this morning. Uh, Help us to understand what we have in the Lord Jesus and in one another and to rejoice in this always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Mount Kosciuszko, I think, gets a bit of a bad rap, okay? You know, when you think of the world's great mountains, uh, it doesn't quite fill the imagination. If you think about one of the world's great hills, okay, all right, it's up there. But one of the world's great mountains, it doesn't quite fill the imagination. But I have to say that when I climbed it for the first time, it's my embarrassment, just a handful of years ago, um, or at least caught the chairlift up and then walked along a fairly low kind of boardwalk amongst about 150, 200 other people up to the top of the hill, I I thought, you know what, this is actually really special. Because as I was standing up there and I was looking around, I thought, you know what, Australia is a huge place. Thousands of kilometres in every direction. And here I am right now, standing at its highest point. But for all of our jokes about it, there was no place on the continent that was higher than where I was standing. I thought, you know what? It's beautiful, it's Australia, and it's awesome. And it made me think you can only wonder what it might be like for those rare few that get to stand on the top of Mount Everest and look around in every direction and go, there is not a higher point on the planet than right here and right now. Now, let me ask, is is it at all appropriate to suggest that there might be a high point or a pinnacle of worship, a high point that stands above all of the other peaks? Can any form of worship be considered to be even greater than the other great forms of worship? Well, I want to say, yes, there is. There is one form of worship that is, stands out above all others, the most profound form of worship, and that is the gathering. God's people gathered around Christ in his word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Church is the pinnacle of worship. Now, why do I say this? Because the Bible does. We might be individuals who as individuals worship God, but God didn't save us to worship him alone. He saved us to worship him together as his people. So have a look, for instance, at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's purpose since the very beginnings of Genesis 
was to save for himself a people that are his own out of the sin-wrecked humanity that has rebelled against him. Or as Ephesians 1 puts it, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to or literally to sum up under one head all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So the very fulfilment of the ages is all of God's creation being brought together under the headship and therefore to demonstrate their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Like the Hebrews who'd been saved in order to worship God in the wilderness, Christians have been saved to gather around God as well. But God hasn't brought us trembling to the foot of Mount Sinai. Look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. You haven't come to Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, God's purpose wasn't to save a bunch of soloists, but to save for himself a choir. Just like the hosts of angels joined together in worship and praise, God is working to join together a billion hearts and a billion voices and a billion holy lives and to gather them around his throne in joyful allegiance, bringing worship and honour and glory to him forever. And he's already doing that. We are united in Christ, united by the Spirit, and God is present amongst us in a special way when we gather together. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So like individual pieces, if you want to think about it this way, in a, in a billion piece jigsaw puzzle, each one of those pieces is a special part of the picture. It's important. But we only fulfil properly our purpose when we're joined together with the other pieces that God has made to take our proper place in a picture that is far greater than just ourselves and far more beautiful than ourselves. Because when we meet, it's an expression of the worship that we're going to do forever. And it's like that majestic picture that was read to us earlier from Revelation chapter 7. I'll just read a part of this. Uh, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, 
and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the peak of peaks when it comes to worship. The chief end of man, as the old confession goes, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever and to do it together. Now, do you remember from the last couple of weeks why God rescued the Israelites in the Exodus? So that as a nation, they might meet with God and worship Him. Let my people go. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his firstborn son and instructs Moses to say this to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may worship me. You see, God views his people as a united entity. Collectively, in a sense, they are his son. And so it's interesting then, isn't it, that in the end, his true son, the eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills everything that God's people Israel were meant to be and to do. It's in that sense that the church, as a united, gathered entity, is described multiple times in the New Testament as being what? The body of Christ. But there is also another metaphor for the church in the New Testament. Now, now that we are united with and in Christ, we, the church, are given a collective description as well. The bride. Revelation again, this time chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For The old order of things has passed away. And later in that same chapter, look at what we read. And I want you to listen for the worship language here. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's like all the, the, the worship, if you read those two chapters, especially the last two chapters, it's like all of the worship images all the shadows of worship from the Old Testament are now so wonderfully and fully and unimpededly, if that's a word, realised as, as God's people gather around Him in heaven. As we enjoy perfect salvation and celebrate the unhindered, untainted, universal expression of our allegiance to God forever. 
Is it any wonder then that the writer of, to the Hebrews says in chapter 10, let us hold unswervingly now to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, when we, when we worship together as a gathering, in a sense, two things are going on. One, we are expressing this eternal reality in the present. We're, we're living out God's eternal purposes in salvation. We're expressing it, a gathered people delighting in His presence and giving Him glory. But second, we actually experience something. We experience what I'm calling a convection of worship. A thousand small candle flames in a thousand different houses only burn as hot as each other. But a thousand candle flames brought together magnifies heat, sucks in more oxygen and grows in intensity. When we come together, there is a convection of worship. We spur one another on. We encourage one another in godliness. We bring our collective prayers to God, our collective praises to God, our collective repentance to God. We bring our varying gifts to the gathering to equip each other for our lives of worship. We bring our collective love together. And we do so first and foremost to express our allegiance to God. But as we do so together, we encourage and strengthen each other's allegiance. Our personal worship as well. A, a convection of worship, a magnification of worship is in operation when we gather. Friends, the pinnacle of worship is church. And that means it should be church. And so for the rest of our time, I want us to think practically about our worship. First of all, I suggest we need to consider what the essential elements are then for corporate worship. Well, let's look at, we remember we looked at allegiance, allegiance in attitude and in action and in ritual. So let's have a look at attitude first. Well, the first element when it comes to attitude is again, humility. Just like we saw last week and we thought about, humility is the life partner of worship. And that applies equally to when we are alone before God and when we are gathered together before Him. So we need to check our pride at the door when we gather, or better still, dispense with it altogether. There's something profoundly contradictory, isn't there, when you think about it, of selfish pride among the people of God as they worship. Worship is essentially humble. Remember that expression we used in the first talk, that worship draws the heart to the heavens and our knees to the earth. Church should be a place of humility, for it is where we acknowledge the glory and the authority and the sovereign rule of God over us and we adore Him for it. And we worship God only in view of God's, worship, of God's mercy, 
We worship God only through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it can all happen. How could we be prideful when that's happening? So what does this look like? Well, we should come to church to worship ready, even eager, for instance, to be challenged by our God. Eager to be rebuked if necessary as we hear his word. As we are individually, so we are together. We don't want to conform to the pattern of this world. We're seeking to be transformed. We're seeking for our minds to be renewed. We're seeking to, uh, um, to know and understand the will of God that together we might go forth and work it out in the world. We are like the elders in, in, in Revelation to joyfully cast down our crowns before the throne of God and say, Lord, rule us. The heart of worship is Jesus, not us, and we gather together to express our allegiance to him. What about the ritual then? What what about the things we do? Well, we know that the Old Testament rituals were fulfilled in Christ. And so there is a lot of freedom in how we are to worship. We aren't under the schoolmaster of the law anymore. But that doesn't mean that we make it up all week by week. The things we need to do must express our allegiance in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. And this will mean at least two things are present. First, the word. The word must be there. God rules us by his word. He makes himself known to us through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So gathering together in his name, may I suggest, means to reflect in our worship his rule over us. God's word must be prominent in all that we do. And it must guide what we do and be the determiner of what is or is not appropriate in the gathering. Second, prayer has to be prominent when God's people gather. It's hard to imagine a a time of true worship where we don't express, actually express our allegiance, either through confession of sin, prayers of thanksgiving, making requests of our great God, asking for his providence and guidance and so on, singing prayers to him with our hearts, even if we're restricted from doing that out loud. Prayerless worship is a contradiction in terms. But apart from these two things, there's a great deal of freedom. But whatever we do, we should take our worship together seriously. We've got to remember God cares about what we do and about our attitudes as we do it. We would do well to reflect in our gatherings what Paul encourages the Colossian church to practice. Colossians 3. Let the message or the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All right, so how how can we make our worship better? Well, I'm sure there are many ideas that are going around in people's hearts and heads, And that's fantastic. 
I hope we are thinking about what will make our worship better and more God-honouring and, and help spur one another on, right? But given that the church is the pinnacle of worship, let me finish with some of my reflections and, and I've got four challenges for us in particular. My first challenge is, is to think about this. We mustn't lose a sense of Sabbath. Now, our rest is found in Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled the Sabbath. And so Colossians tells us not to um, let anyone judge us on the basis of Sabbaths or set days and so on. But that doesn't mean that we consign the whole concept to the dustbin of history. God in his wisdom, and we need to understand, and in his grace to us, because the Sabbath was made for humanity's benefit, set up a day for rest, a day for worship, a day for service, a day for our minds to stop thinking about work and be drawn to God and his glory as creator and as saviour. It was a day of sacred assembly. The Sabbath, you see, made space for worship. Now, we live in a world that is all rush, all work, all everything else. And it can be as if we have to check our calendars on our phones to work out whether we can squeeze worship in sometimes. The extra shift at work, the family lunch, the kids' sport, the birthday party, regularly take priority over worship for many people. We always have somewhere else to go and something else to do. So gathering for church can end up being the tail to the world's dog, being wagged to and fro however the world feels and the world determines and always seems or often seems to come last. But should there be any competition shouldn't it be our lord and savior jesus christ first and you tell the world to wait in line i mean haven't we lost something and by we i mean we in sydney and i suspect in other western churches in particular because you know many african church services go for more than half the day if you want to go home early they're half the day <laughs> um, have multiple sermons meals songs prayers and Bible studies before and afterwards. Islander churches are often like that. Chinese churches are often like that. During the Reformation and for a number of centuries after that, people would go to church morning and night on a Sunday and during the week as well. In fact, twice a Sunday was normal practice, even in Sydney up until a couple of decades ago. You know, back when the shops were closed and practically no one worked on Sundays. See, worship had time. Worship had space. Sunday was a day of worship. Now? Now the attitude in many Sydney churches can be get on with it and keep it short. I've got places to go. I've got people to see. And I hope they don't make me concentrate for any longer than is easy for me. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily the attitude here at Christchurch. In fact, in many ways, I think we've rightly resisted this mentality often. 
But it is very common and it is very common in our circles and maybe amongst some of us. Look, those running gatherings need to work hard at making them as helpful for the body as they can be and not times of idle indulgence where you just phone it in and drag things out. But that can be a consumer mentality church that puts all the emphasis on the work that those organising the gathering should be doing for us and very little on the inner spiritual work that every believer, that every worshipper who gathers should be doing before the gathering, during the gathering and after the gathering. There's something wrong about gathering with one eye on Jesus and the other eye on your watch. Look, I'm not saying the answer is easy because we live in the world that we live in and it's a 24-7 world, right? And certainly we're not about putting ourselves back under the law of Moses. But I do feel like there can be something missing. Has Western Christianity conformed itself to the pattern of the world? Because this is a time of sacred assembly. This is the pinnacle of what the concept of Sabbath was meant to express. God's people together finding their rest and their joy in God and in one another. And that is good. The second challenge we face is to be careful, I think, not to lose the reverence of worship. Sometimes in our striving to be accessible and contemporary, Western Christians can become so casual as to be irreverent. You can be warm without being sloppy. You can be relaxed without being disrespectful or like treating this occasion like it's just anything else. Sometimes we just need to remember that we're worshipping God together. (laughs) And he is present amongst us when we do that. A church we're drawing near to the holy and majestic God, the judge of all the earth, and that is a profound privilege that we should recognise as being a profound privilege and absorb that in our attitude when we gather, that we should never treat flippantly or mindlessly. God still cares about how he's worshipped. There should be a healthy and joyful fear of God as we meet. When we gather for church, it's not merely to catch up. We're not hanging out. We're gathered to spur one another on to love and righteousness and holiness. That's a pretty important purpose, isn't it? To remind each other to look up because our King is coming, as Tom Tressida would say to look back to what our King has done so that we might live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. We gather to minister to one another. We gather together to learn from God's word, have it penetrate our hearts and minds like a two-edged sword that we might be renewed and transformed by it. We gather together to encourage one another as we declare God's wonders and praise his name. That's serious business. When we gather for church or for growth group or for any other sacred purpose, and I use that term deliberately, we need to make sure, as sporting coaches might say, that we have our game faces on. 
For that gathering is not hanging out. It is the pinnacle of worship. The third challenge is a a particularly current one in this time of COVID. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 said, Do not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In fact, the writer tells them to gather all the more as they see the day approaching. But COVID has completely messed with our habits because it's prevented our gatherings. And yet, theologically, how are we to understand as Christians the times that we live in? As you look out in the world, you're watching the news and going, what on earth is going on? Do you know the Bible tells us that things like COVID and wars and political turmoil and other things like that are to serve as reminders for God's people, for the world really, and a testimony to the world, that this broken world's days are numbered. That's what we're meant to look out at the mess around us and see. That every person in the world's days are numbered. Christ has already achieved his work on the cross, brothers and sisters. He has already risen from the dead. He is ready right now to return to judge the living and the dead. And that means that we should be ready. And we should be calling others to be ready, for that could happen at any time. That day is approaching. So what must we not do? Lose the habit of gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, live stream is good and boy am I thankful for it. But virtual gathering, we need to understand, is an approximation and a very helpful one at that. But it is not the real thing. Live stream is something we had planned to do this year, actually, and budgeted for even before COVID turned up, which is wonderful. Um, because what live stream does is it enables the person who's prevented from coming, from coming to church for health or for other reasons to still actually be a part and feel like they're a part of what's going on and to be ministered to by the word and everything like that. Um, Livestream also enables, I think, an easy invitation, when you think about it, for someone investigating church or Christianity that can enable them to sort of check things out without having to overcome the hurdle of an unfamiliar setting or, or, or people. And so we're going to keep doing it. And we're going to keep doing it for those reasons, even when things are back to normal. But those of us who can gather should gather when it is safe for us to do so. Our God commands us to. We must resist the lure to be too comfortable with watching the gathering from the convenience of our lounge rooms because it is an approximation, not the real thing. It's hard to love and spur others on through a one-way screen. Now, it may be many months before things get back to some kind of normality when it comes to bigger gatherings here on site. Although we can now have a reasonable number here, as I can see before me, and if you come next week, you'll see before you. But my challenge is, for all of us, whether you're at home or whether you're here, prize the gathering, right? Prize the gathering. 
get proactive about meeting with others around the word to worship together in whatever way you can, whether it's here or at home, whether it's centrally organised or something that you initiate off your own bat because you go, gathering with other Christians is critically important as what my God wants me to do. We have an opportunity from a deep conviction of the worth of church to get out there and get inviting and make the most of it when we do that the Word of God might dwell among us richly, whether in each other's lounge rooms or here in the building. How can you gather with others? The final challenge I have for us is remembering that mission has a role in worship. Christ hasn't returned yet because He is growing that heavenly gathering around Him through the preaching of the gospel. God wants to see others become a part of that community of worship and that means we should too. We want to hear, don't we, countless voices together crying out, worthy is the Lamb. We've just come off a term in 1 Peter that was all about what? Our identity, living as aliens and strangers here representing and proclaiming Christ in the world that others might come to know and glorify him on the day he returns. That we'd all be always ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Well, guess what we're doing next Sunday? (laughs) All right, we've got a great opportunity for them to hear about that hope and for the reason for it. And then after that, we've got a term where we're doing Christianity Explored and we're going to have groups doing that. Let's not have three people doing Christianity Explored. Let's have 30 people doing Christianity Explored. And how are they going to get there? How are they going to know to do it? Because we ask them. We say there is something that I'd love you to know about. There's someone I would love you to know about. And I've been thinking about you and I've been praying about you. Would you consider coming along to this? Now that live stream is happening, it's never been easier to invite someone to hear the gospel. So here's my challenge. Who are you going to invite? Take a chance. Take an opportunity. Make an opportunity this week. Let's pray and invite. Let's see the Christianity Explored group bursting at the seams of people wanting to hear more about Jesus. Well, that's only going to happen if you and I pray and if you and I invite people and talk to them. So make a phone call. Send someone a text or an email. Ask them to go for a walk with you this week. Because you know what? Christ is worth their worship too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you have done in the Lord Jesus that we can perfectly worship you through him. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful gift of your church. Help us to prize it, to value it, and to do the churching, to do the gathering while we await our Lord Jesus' return. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.